Well, if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6? We'll read verses 10 through 13 and focus in on verse 11. We're to the difficult part of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters is quite easy in the sense where we're reading about what God has done for us in Christ. And we can see that and we can know that. We read about how there's a new birth given to us. There's new people that are birthed out and united in Christ. But then in chapter 4, you have to start walking in this new life, applying it. That's where we're at uh, this morning in chapter 6. It's a rubber-meets-the-road sort of text. And the Apostle Paul tells us, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Father, would You help us lean in this morning to these words. Give us faith to believe them. Father, would Your Spirit work this morning in our lives through this text. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been discussing Satan's schemes the last three weeks and how Satan seeks to divide us from God and from one another. And that all of Christ's work is a uniting work. It's a work to unite us to God, to unite Jew and Gentile with one another, husbands and wives to each other, children and parents with each other. It's a uniting work that Christ does. It's a dividing work the devil does. He's a murderer. He's came to divide us. In Psalm 133, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Verse 1 is, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Isn't that true? Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I'm looking around to see if we got many beards here this morning. We got a few, I see. You guys will appreciate this because the very next verse says this It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now maybe you've known it's been blessed to dwell in unity with brothers and sisters in Christ, but did you know it is so blessed? It's like 
oil running down Aaron's beard and onto his robe. What it, we read that and we're like, so why is that blessed? This is the consecration of, of Aaron and the priesthood. He's being set apart. He's being made ceremonially ready and holy to do the work of uh, the priesthood. It's a man that's able to have unity with God because of this work. Many of us don't know how pleasant it is to have that. In a fallen world, even amongst Christians, so often it's constant pain, constant struggle, so it seems. But this is what we have been called to. The battle has been clearly defined for us in this Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's clearly defined in Scripture. In one sense, it's like this should be easy. Satan wants to divide. Christ wants to unite. So you think we would just all hop on the unite train. Let's go with Christ. Let's not go with the devil, right? It seems like that would be easy, but we read this and it seems so clear, but then you get in the midst of the fog of our sin and selfishness and jealousy and envy and offenses and unforgiveness. And all of a sudden it gets really clouded and we say, yes, I want to follow Christ. Yes, I want to unite with Christ and not with Satan. And this text is meant for us to be reminded of the world we actually live in, what's actually going on. I want to just remind us of, of the ground we covered last week. We're, we're looking at what sort of lies does Satan tell us in him as he seeks to divide us from one another? What sorts of things does he say? Paul wants us to know the schemes of the devil. He, the Scripture is given to us. Uh, we talked about how like infrared binoculars or scopes can help the military see the enemy. Well, the Word of God is like this. If we can see where the problems are coming from, then we can deal with them biblically. And I don't know if you've ever looked at how expensive those binoculars are at Sodak. But you can get cheap ones, which aren't cheap, or you can get ones that are really good. And my argument to you is, everyone would go in and want the best ones, right? If you just get them for free, give me the best ones. I want the ones that light up any heat signal out there in the dark so I can shoot that coyote or in the military, see the enemy that's approaching. Well, you can have that to the degree that you understand the Scripture, to the degree that you lean in to the message and say, this could be mine. 
This can be valuable to me. So it's my prayer you will. I want to begin in 1 Samuel 18. And beginning in verse 6. And here we have an account of David and Saul. And if I was going to ask the question, what is it that caused the division between David and Saul? What was it that created all this? I wonder if you would know the answer. It, It kind of surprised me as I looked at it. So let's read it together and consider it, all right? We're going to read through verse 16. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 16. We're asking the question, why did Saul turn against David? All right? Verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, a woman came out of all the cities, or the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. That's who they came to meet, King Saul. With tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, and this displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit came, a a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did this day by day and Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of uh, David because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David and went out and came in before them. Or for he went out and came in before them. And then in verse 29, skipping ahead, it says, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. What broke their relationship? That's the question at hand, and this is number six in your notes. Last week, there there was uh, five lies we went through. Satan comes and says, what is love? He redefines love for us, allows us to have division among one another and still think we're loving. He puffs us up in our pride. He says, you are impressive. Do you see how much better you are than others? Like the Pharisees. We're divided from 
the people in their prime. He comes and says, sacrifice, show no mercy. Essentially, work on your outward Christianity. Cut yourself off from all these things, but whatever you do, don't show mercy to others. You know, here's where Christians are comparing who's more godly, who is separated from more things. This was the Pharisees' problems. And as these discussions go, division arises. Speaking truth is loving no matter what. The Scripture never teaches this. We talked about how it takes true maturity to speak truth in love. It's easy to just speak truth callously. Uh, And number five, forget the cross for a moment. I don't think they deserve your forgiveness. Satan comes and says, you don't always have to be looking at the cross. There are some times that it's right to withhold forgiveness in your heart. I'm not even talking about transactional forgiveness when someone confesses their sin and repents and forgives. That's true. That's when you offer transactional forgiveness. But Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Meaning, there's a heart wanting to forgive. And Satan comes along and says, don't let Jesus forgiving you make you think that you need to have a heart ready to forgive. And forgiveness can be a complicated uh, thing, and that could be three sermons in and of itself. But at the core, Christ has forgiven you so that we, uh, He's forgiven you, He's forgiven me, so that we can forgive one another. He's came to unite Jew and Gentile. And the sixth thing is this. The sixth lie is this. Stay away. I would be suspicious of them. Suspicion is the reason that Saul and David's relationship was broken. What are the facts of the text? The facts of the text are this. Israel was successful in victory. And women came out to greet Saul, the king. And they came to sing praises. But as Saul heard that more deaths were ascribed, more enemies were killed, that David killed than Saul, which were the facts, by the way, that was the end of Saul's relationship with David. And what the text tells us is that here's how it progressed for Saul. In verse 8, it said he became very angry and this displeased him. The relationship, David didn't do anything to Saul. But he became angry as envy and jealousy filled his heart and Anger was linked to suspicion. In verse 9 it says, Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Literally the text means he eyed him. 
some women sang, and then all of a sudden, Saul said, oh, I bet he's coming after me. I bet he's coming after my throne. I bet he wants to get me. And suspicion turned into ranting in verse 10. And in verse 11, anger that turned to suspicion that turned to ranting turned into attempted murder. All because some women came out to praise the king. You, you see the devil at work? You see how easy relationships can be broken? Verse 12 says, Now Saul was afraid of David, so now fear sets in on the person that is struggling with sinful suspicion. And then verse 15, dread sets in. It says he dreaded him. And then in verse 29, it said he was even more afraid of David. And now David was his continual enemy. One of the greatest ways Satan will seek to divide people is through suspicion. And people are not afraid to think suspicious thoughts about one another because they don't see that it's in a, a trend. They don't know where it leads. They don't know the result. They don't see it as an attack of the enemy. Because when we're suspicious of one another, we just feel smart. We just feel like we live in reality. Like we know what's really going on. Other people, they're naive. But I know what's right. we got to remember that Satan is an opportunist. After Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. In Luke 4.13 it says, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Alright? So now listen to me. Satan being an opportunist is looking for some hurt in any relationship. And he knows at that moment he's got a good opportunity. He's got a good opportunity to separate brothers and sisters in Christ from one another. Because when there is an offense or a hurt in any relationship, his eyes will light up. He sees his opportunity. And often, the first reaction to hurt, if it isn't just a confrontive uh, Fight is separation or isolation, a pulling back. That hurt me. I'm pulling back right now. So a hurt turns into isolation. And then often in isolation, sinful thinking begins about the party that has hurt you. All right? This is how it grows. This is sinful thinking. It's worry. It's a lack of sober-mindedness that all of us are, as believers are called to have. It's like a cancer that 
begins to grow. And it grows into suspicion. And suspicion is like a big wedge that is driven into a chunk of wood. And that division gets wider and wider the longer the suspicion goes. Every time you hit that wedge further into the block, it's getting closer and closer to the time it falls apart and separates. When suspicion then is allowed to grow into settled division, you might think, well, Satan has succeeded. All right, they're divided. Both parties are agreed. We don't like each other. We're divided. We can't work through this. We can't forgive one another. It's over. You might think Satan is done there. Because he came to murder. He came to separate. He came and and, and now he's done it. Well, he's not done yet. Because at this stage, because Satan is so evil, he's so torturous, this cancerous disease may have divided people, but now bitterness will set in in the human heart. And when bitterness sets in to the human heart, it will separate you from joy. It'll separate you from faith. It'll separate you from hope. It'll separate you from love. And it'll separate you from thanksgiving, which God has purposed all those things for His people. It's a big deal. This is... Rubber meets the road. I've had a lot of people tell me the last few weeks has been convicting and helpful to them. And the reason is, is because we all, this is the battle. You're a new creation in Christ. The battle is hard on the battlefield. And the battlefield, when you still have remaining selfishness like I have, and pride, like I have. And selfish ambition, like I can have. Then this is where Christianity is the hardest. But this is what it's about. This is what you're saved for. Jesus said, they'll know you are my disciples by your love for one another. There's a reason why it's the hardest thing. It's easy to have our theology together and to believe the right things. It's hard to live that out. And so one of His fundamental ways He seeks to divide us is through sinful worry. Sinful drunk thinking. Lack of sober-mindedness. Saul's mind just started running. I bet he's after me. I bet this. I bet that. And he was wrong. But it didn't matter. He let it overtake him. It separated him from God. As well as the people of Israel and from David himself. So brothers and sisters, 
How do you, how, how do you think about this? We ought to tremble when we see this begin, this process begin to start, because it doesn't just end at suspicion. It goes to division. It goes to bitterness. It goes to losing joy. It goes to losing hope and beginning to doubt the goodness of God. That's the trek that it's on. There's a book that I was reading last week written by a biblical counselor, Lou Priolo, called Suspicion. Alright? I went into Scott's office and said, we got to get one for everybody. This book isn't for people that struggle with suspicion. This book is for everybody because whether you know it or not, you struggle with this. The subtitle, How to Overcome Paranoid Thinking. We all need this. We all need to read this. So, they're on order. We're going to put one in all your hands. Part of the job of the elders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so we commend it to you to read it. To consider. It's hard to read. It makes you do a self-assessment. He like lists like 15 attending sins to paranoid thinking. I just want to read a little bit from the first attending sin to paranoid thinking. Uh, anxiety. All right. Here's what he says. At its core, sinful suspicion is a form or a specific manifestation of anxiety. Both anxiety and suspicion involve uh, anticipation of some kind of threat. At the very least, worry tends to intensify the distress of suspicious thinking. And he says there's numerous working definitions for worry that one can extrapolate from Scripture. So let's consider three that relate to sinful suspicion. So, so these are three definitions of sinful worry that relates to suspicion, okay? The first one is this. Here's the definition. Worry is experiencing unnecessary emotional pain in the face of imaginary suffering. All right, let me say it again. Worry is experiencing unnecessary emotional pain in the face of imaginary suffering. And then he writes, worry is fear in the absence of real danger. It over it is overestimating, mentally exaggerating, both the possibility of danger as well as the degrees of terribleness associated with it. Worry is often accompanied by imagined negative results. He says it's feeling a pinprick, or it's feeling a pinprick as though it were a deep, deep knife wound. All right? Something very small, but you feel it emotionally as such a huge attack. 
And then he says, a suspicious person is constantly on the prowl for any evidence that would substantiate his obsessive concern that people are threatening his safety. You know, it's, it's the keeping a record of wrongs to prove the case that this person really is after me. There is a real danger. The second definition is this. Worry is anticipating future suffering without anticipating the grace that God has promised to those who suffer. That's so important. Let me say that again. Worry is anticipating future suffering without anticipating the grace that God has promised to those who suffer. He writes, Jesus said to His disciples, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 6.34 Worry focuses its attention on what might happen tomorrow or at some point in the future rather than on what must be done today in the present. Few people consider the sinfulness of thinking anxiously about the future. So he's saying, we, do, we just kind of say, well, this is just what, this, we're just human. Why would I feel guilty about being anxious about the future? That's just human. He says, few people consider the sinfulness of it. Rather than actively repenting of such thoughts, they continue tormenting themselves, often for hours each day, with imaginary anguish, an agony that is almost always above and beyond the misery that would occur should the Lord allow what they dread to come to pass. Isn't that amazing? This worst case scenario that we can sit there and think through, and I bet this is going to happen. I bet so-and-so is going to do this to me. and I. You'll suffer more in the sin of that worry than you would if the actual thing actually happened according to the Lord's will. And then he says, because they are not focusing their thoughts on today's problem, problems, they can't imagine that God will really help them with tomorrow's problems. They don't understand or believe that tomorrow will care for itself, that each day has enough trouble of its own. The grace of God for problems tomorrow is not available today. Especially when we spend so much time disobeying the Lord by not taking hold of our torturously sinful imaginations. When it is proper and necessary to think about the future... Now, this is worth its weight in gold when I read this. This is what I... Listen to this. When it is proper and necessary to think about the future, we should anticipate God's goodness to us as His beloved children. Rather than impetuously thinking like this, this guy's going to harm me, or I'll never be able to handle that, or I'll be devastated if she does this or that. As followers of Christ, we should put the best possible interpretations on God's dealing with us. In other words, 
if we as Christians are going to make prophecies about the future, we ought to prophesy with hope. Worry is thinking about the future with little or no hope, rather than infusing and fortifying our thoughts with biblical hope. Worriers interpret life as though God will not keep His promises. I love that. If you're going to think about the future, you better think that you can't imagine how good God is going to be to His children in the future. If Christ was given for your salvation, how will He not also with Christ give you all things? The reason why I'm passionate about this is this, this is the foothold Satan's had in my life from the time I was a kid. That until I started getting help, it was miserable. I can struggle with all this. I can imagine you thinking bad things about me that maybe you're not even thinking. And then that can cause me to treat you different than I ought to treat you. All because I treat sometimes suspicion as, oh, it's just human. This is just what we do. But 1 Corinthians 13, where love is described as what we, in the sense of what love does, listen to what it says. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. See, that's where, that's where Saul's problem was. It was envying. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Now, I don't like this. The SV says, or resentful. That word resentful is translated in other translation as doesn't take into account wrong suffered. Love doesn't take into account wrong suffered. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Why does he say that? Because if you're convinced someone's out to get you, and then you see them do something wrong, it can almost be like, oh, did you see that? There it is. It's right there. My suspicions were true. Add another thing to the list. That person's bad. That person's dangerous. See, it doesn't take into account wrong suffered, but rejoices with the truth. The facts. What's actually true. Saul wasn't dealing with the truth. Was he? He was dealing with his emotions and his feelings and his imaginations. But love rejoices in the truth, with the truth. And then it says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Wait a minute. What does it mean love believes all things? We're talking, love is an action towards one another. What, what, type of fool would I have to be to 
lean in and believe good about you when I know you're sinful. You're fallen like I am. You struggle with selfishness and pride like I do. But in Christ, those who have been given the Spirit of God, we are asked to believe all things, hope all things, believe the best about one another and not the worst about one another. So if you justify yourself as, I'm just a realist. I say, well, how do you interpret this then? It endures all things. That tells you that Paul right there is imagining that you're believing the best about someone that's going to cause you to experience the relationship like endurance sometimes. See, there's a, there, there's a challenge there. And Jesus Himself, what did He say? He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. There's the heart disposition before your actual enemies. We're not talking about suspicion and believing false things about each other. We're talking about just a full-on enemy. What's your heart to be doing? Praying for them? Leaning into them? Love your enemies? Pray for those who persecute you? We can't ever justify our minds and our hearts seeking to build a wedge or division or unforgiveness towards one another. Yes, we got to work through things and talk through things. But here's my question. Christ came to unite all things in Himself. He died on the cross to unite us to Him take our sins away and to unite us to one another. What choice do we have? You might be more difficult to love than someone else, and I might be more difficult to love than someone else, but what choice do we have if I'm going to call myself a Christian? What's the purpose of your life? We are called to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil who seeks to murder us and destroy us. All right, that was a long point. Point seven. Don't you wish you had it as good as them? You know, this is just envy. We've already talked a lot about that. We saw that. What brings division, you know, you know the text that says, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I'm here to confess with you, it's easy to weep with those who weep. It's hard to rejoice with those who rejoice because we're often envious and jealous of one another. And when someone has success, it's actually hard to be happy for them. I mean, you might be able to pretend it a little bit, but it's like, why not? how come it doesn't happen like that in my life? How come it always seems to go good for them and not for me? All right, number eight. The devil comes and says, vengeance is yours, says the Lord. Right? That's the opposite of what God says. Satan comes and says, you must make them pay. Here's how it works. Here, here, 
when we forget that our life is defined by Christ, we will seek to get our value from how other people respond to us. So if you're not filled in Christ, Christ being the fullness of deity, and you've been filled in Him, Colossians 2.9, is what we talked about in Sunday school. If you're not full in Christ, then you're going to need people to respond to you in a certain way, and if they don't, you're going to have to punish them to teach them not to do it again. See, it feels safer this way. My husband did this to me, so i got to put him in the doghouse for a few days, because if I don't do that, then he's going to hurt me more. Right? This is how we tend to think. I need to take vengeance myself to control the situation, to let him know how bad I'm hurt. He hurt me so bad, I've got to hurt him a little bit, or he'll never know how bad. You see? That's how it works. And yet, Romans 12.9, he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So remember that. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Because we're going to have to figure out what's evil and what's good. Here's what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Brothers, never, never, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. You don't have to suffer and pretend like it doesn't matter. You're just not the one to set all the wrongs right all the time. This says, brothers, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then, now we're back to evil. Remember at the beginning? He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when he tells you to abhor what is evil, not fall to it, the way Paul imagines evil taking control of us is when we're harmed, we respond in vengeance. We repay evil for evil. So the first action, evil. The response, evil. Devil's work is done. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't repay evil for evil. Leave it to me. God will reveal the secrets of every man's heart. God 
will reveal. He's a good judge. Nothing gets by Him. And there's a freedom there to remember that we're not God. All right, number nine. Trust your own knowledge about another person's heart. This is kind of like suspicion. What often divides people from one another is we really think we know the intentions of the other person's heart. 1 Corinthians 4. This is important. Verses 3 through 5. Here's what Paul says. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Here's the thing. When, when, when we look at one another and say, I bet they're thinking this. I bet their intentions are like this. You just have to know, and I need to know, how different we are than the Apostle Paul when we think that way. Because Paul says this, I don't know of any unrepentant sin that right now that... that I haven't dealt with, but I'm not therefore acquitted. But what we do is we say, not only do I know my heart, but I know your heart, and I know what you're doing. You see that? You see how arrogant it is when we assume that we know? Here's where C.S. Lewis says, people think they're 80% right when they think they know what other people are thinking, and they're probably only right less than 10% of the time. You see, we're wise in our own sight. We think we can discern it all and what they're probably thinking. And then suspicion grows, and yet the Apostle Paul says, I don't even assume that with myself. And that's why he says, therefore, don't go judging everyone else's intentions. That's God's job. Number 10, if you admit you're wrong or apologize, they'll just take advantage of you. All right. Sometimes it feels dangerous to admit your own fault because then you feel like you're giving up power. Right? Which is related to the number 11. You must manipulate the situation to get control as long as it's for a good purpose. Satan says, go ahead and manipulate. As long as you've got a good purpose at the end, manipulate your relationships to, to get the ends you want. But you see, if you seek to do that, here's what you'll have to do. You'll have to be unwilling to look in at yourself and admit your own sin and, and ask for forgiveness. You won't be able to do that because you need to build a case how you're better and they're worse. And you might say, man, who are these manipulators? They're you and they're me. when we spend little time praying and having hearts that are for those who are hurting us and spend a lot of time scheming and thinking 
and manipulating and planning. You see? All right. Number 12. You must isolate. This has two parts to it. You must, you must isolate because you can't handle getting hurt one more time. You, you must isolate. Now, I just have to say here, I'm not talking about uh, an abusive situation where nobody needs to stay in an abusive situation. You need to go to the authorities. You need to come to pastors. You need, you need to get help if you're in an abusive situation. But what Satan says is, I'm talking about like our emotional hurt in relationships in a more common sense. What we naturally feel is, ooh, that hurt. I'm, I'm, I'm walking away from that. I, I need to isolate from that because I don't want to get hurt again. Well, that sounds reasonable, but I'm saying that's a satanic lie. Isolate from one another so you don't get hurt again. Or the other way this one works is isolate. You can handle it. You're tough enough. You don't need them. See, it can be either way. But Satan's goal is to divide us. You realize the privilege that Jesus has won for us, making us one in Christ, uniting us together in one spirit? That on the worst day of your life, there's a whole family here that loves you and cares for you and wants to minister to you? What a gift! that we don't have to go through the hardest things in our life on our own. But you know what? Most church people do. Most church people on our hardest days pull away. Why? Because Satan hates your guts. He wants to separate you from the people who will encourage you, who will appoint you to the Lord, he wants the bitterness to grow. And so, he seeks to isolate us. So let's not underestimate the devil. This is why Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. You see how this is just life? <laughs> this is the battle of Living, I mean, we were just in Wall Drug yesterday coming back from the conference, and it's like there's a sign that said, I like coffee and like three people. And that sign sells, I'm sure, quite well because life in a fallen world is hard, and relationships are hard. But here's how the Apostle Paul prays at the end of his letter to the Romans. And this is how we'll end today. Romans 15.5 He says, May the God of endurance Do you need endurance? May the God of endurance and encouragement Do you need encouragement? Good thing God is the God of endurance and He's the God of encouragement. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you 
to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ, that together you may, may with one voice glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God.